If what I just prayed about were to happen, if the Spirit of God were to fill our worship service, what would that look like? What would it sound like? It can be tempting to think that perhaps if the Spirit of God were here, maybe everything would get kind of a fresh look, a fresh youthful feel, and all the new trends that are coming along with worship would be here. We'd have electric guitars with delay-laden swells, which is one of my favorite sounds in the world as a guitarist, and synthesizers making these transcendent sounds, and drums doing a good slow build that would finally land into something powerful. Or it could be tempting to think that if the Spirit of God were here in our worship service, Rather than do the newest thing, we would get back to that old down-home sound that we grew up with, right? If the Spirit of God was here, we'd get back to that familiar feel, what I grew up with, what I love. By contrast, there are people all over the world who would tell us that if the Spirit of God showed up today, that we would begin to shake physically, and some of us would fall out in the aisles, and some people would begin to speak in tongues uncontrollably, and things would kind of erupt into a chaotic mess. That's not just in the States that that's preached. It's all over the world that people even experience some of that and believe that it is the Spirit of God that has descended on their worship. But it happens here in the States too. There's a prominent megachurch pastor here in the United States who teaches that when the Spirit of God is present in their worship services, angel feathers fall from the sky. And one way or another, that's going on there. And he's claiming that's because the Spirit of God is there causing those angel feathers to fall down from the sky. My point is, if we don't have a clear picture of what fullness of the Spirit looks like in worship services, we could go off on all sorts of wrong paths, right? We'll cling to anything that might look like the Spirit being there, and if we don't clearly know what it is, well, maybe, maybe angel feathers falling from the sky is Spirit-filled worship. Maybe the newest sound is Spirit-filled, but maybe the old sound is Spirit-filled worship, but what we're going to find today in the scriptures is that the Bible actually paints a vividly clear picture of what spirit-filled worship is like. One that can correct us of all of our misconceptions about good worship, and one that could lead our churches to hold worship services that make visitors look around and say, something special and supernatural is going on here. And as we follow Jesus Christ, that is what we are pressing on toward. We want His Spirit to be here when we worship. We want Spirit-filled people, Spirit-filled worship services. We believe together that Jesus calls every man, woman, and child to follow Him. We believe He has called us to follow Him, and that is why we are here this morning. Uh, if you're new with us, you need to know that we believe Jesus Christ died and rose to pay for our sins, that we had amassed an unpayable sin debt before God, but that God himself became man, lived on the earth, and died in our place to earn forgiveness for us. That man, Jesus Christ, now calls us to follow him. And if you don't follow him this morning, I pray that what we will talk about will give you a picture of just how good he is and how good his ways are and how worthy he is of following. If, like me, you do follow him, I pray that the fruit he will bear in you is spirit-filled worship on Sunday morning. So let's look at the text of the Bible this morning and see what spirit-filled worship would look like and how we could get there. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 5. 
And if you don't have a Bible, grab the Dark Pew Bible in front of you and toward the end, turn it to page 153. We're going to read from Ephesians 5, verses 18 and 19 this morning, looking for a sign of spirit-filled worship. The Spirit himself says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. The Word of God. Amen. I was at a concert once in Boston when Emily and I lived in Massachusetts for a time, and it was at the Boston House of Blues. And if you've never been to a venue like that before, the Boston House of Blues looks very much like a concert hall, and it's got a stage just like our church does, and uh, it didn't have pews or seats. Everybody just stood out there. And one kind of marked feature about it when you walked in was that all along the right side of the building was a massive bar with all sorts of bottles of anything that you could imagine and bartenders that were there and ready to serve it to you. Uh, and that gives you an idea of normally of the kind of acts that play at the Boston House of Blues. Uh, but on this evening, they think it may have been one of the very first times that a Christian act was playing at the Boston House of Blues. Uh, and not just a Christian act, but a worship leader. Uh, there were three acts that evening, and, and progressively they moved from kind of Christian performance to the last act was just completely worship. And everybody was singing along, the lyrics were up on a screen in front of us, and we just had this holy time together, gathered as the people of God. And the bartenders were just kind of standing there, you know, with nothing to do because nobody was interested in going over to the bar and paying $15 for a cocktail or $8 for a beer or whatever it was. Every once in a while, somebody went over there and paid two bucks for a bottle of water, but that was about it. And so the performers started noticing that while we were having this wonderful time, there was sort of this problem being created. These people who work for tips, all of a sudden we're gonna remember the night that Christians came to their building as a bad night financially because they weren't selling any alcohol because we weren't interested in it. And so she really gracefully led us through this so that we wouldn't give a poor testimony to unbelievers. And she just said, hey, I, if they're not gonna remember us as good drinkers, which is a good thing that they're not remembering us as that, uh, let them remember us as generous. If you would, just go over there, pay two bucks for a bottle of water and tip them five bucks on it so at least they can remember us as generous people. And sure enough, people, some people didn't even buy anything. They just walked over there and threw five bucks in the bar just to take care of those people who were kind of surprised to have a bad night because Christians had taken over the building for a night. It might seem strange to you, and for a while it seems strange to me that in this text, Paul would paint a contrast between getting drunk with wine and being full of the Spirit in song. But what I saw that night shed some light on it. The world's gatherings are often filled with a very different type of spirit than the people of God's gatherings are. And that difference, that contrast, that question of what do we fill ourselves with when we get together, I believe is what Paul is getting at here when he says these words. So a similar thing actually to that night was happening in Ephesus uh, to whom Paul is writing here when he writes these words. 
most gatherings throughout the history of the church have looked a little bit like the world's gatherings. For instance, now if you gather with a bunch of people, if we do that together, typically there's a stage and there are a bunch of seats that are faded, faced this way, and our church gatherings look a lot like that. Well, in the first century, uh, the main way that people got together wasn't in a theater-type experience. It was in a banquet-type thing. It looked a little more like our potlucks than like our worship services here. And there were tables, and there was food, and everybody was dressed to impress, and the honorable people got to sit at the fancy spots, and regular people at the not-so-fancy spots, and some people just had to sit on the floor or stand if there wasn't room for everybody. There was tons of food. There was music. There would be singing and dancing. Somebody would get up, kind of like at a wedding banquet, and give a toast or say a few words. Uh, and that's how they would gather. Well, another thing that happened was there, there would be wine there, and there would be lots of wine. And typically, when you got a lot of people together like that at a feast or a banquet, uh, people would start to drink too much wine, and there was all sorts of behavior that went along with that. Well, Christian worship services looked similar to that, except they adapted it a little bit. It still looked like a banquet. It still had tables. There still was food everywhere. If you imagine one of our potluck dinners or a wedding rehearsal dinner, it looked just about like that, except the songs that they would sing would be Christian songs. They would be songs of praise to Jesus Christ. When someone stood up to speak, it would be one of the pastors or an apostle or someone with teaching from the scriptures. And the wine, much like we would use it, was used for the Lord's Supper, not to intoxicate yourself. And so Paul is saying to them, this is one marked way that your gatherings need to look different from the world's gatherings. Don't fill yourself with wine. Instead, fill yourself with something else so that we look a little different. It's consistent with this whole section. I know we haven't been preaching through this epistle, and so we haven't talked about it much, but this whole half of Ephesians here, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, is all about what makes us different from the world. You know, he's saying things like, don't walk like this, walk like this instead. They do this, we should do that. All these contrasts between us and the world, between the church and the world. And here he gets to one that just tells us a little bit about how our gatherings should look, how they should look just a little bit different. When we gather, he says, we shouldn't be full of wine. Uh, and the reason is because that leads to what your pew Bibles call dissipation. How many of you guys use the word dissipation in a sentence this week? <laughs> right? I, I almost wanted to call my eighth grade English teacher and ask, Ms. Stetter, what does dissipation mean? Like, I don't even know, except she didn't like me very much, so I didn't do that. Uh, I, I, just, I just looked it up instead. Um, and what it means, there's actually not a good modern word that's a, an equivalent for it. We don't have words really for that anymore. But it's basically all of the stuff that people do when you get a bunch of people together and give them too much alcohol. It's that kind of behavior. Maybe you've been at a restaurant before where the table, two tables down, just had all of them had too much to drink and they're just rowdy in their behavior and you don't really know what they're going to do when they leave the room together. That kind of behavior is what he's talking about. He says, don't get drunk with wine for it. It leads to that. Uh, if you're filled with wine, what it's going to do is it's going to overcome you, and the things that come out of you will not be good, right? The, the words that come out of your mouth will be foolish because you've been overtaken by this chemical that you've let into your body. The songs that come out of you might be really spirited, even more spirited than normal, but they'll be useless songs, usually with words that aren't of any use at all. And the deeds that you will do could range from any number of terrible things. Uh, you might wake up the next morning with the wrong person. 
You might physically hurt somebody that you love, or you might convince yourself that you're still able to drive a car and wreck mayhem on the whole rest of your life and perhaps someone else's. Alcohol will overcome you if you drink too much of it, and it will affect your behavior, it will affect your judgment, and the people around you will notice. So Paul says, don't fill yourself with that. Instead, it's a different kind of spirits that you should be filled with. Now, before we move on and talk about what sort of spirit we should be filled with, let me just apply this to two conversations that sometimes go on in the church and the world. Uh, first of all, there is still some talk, and, and the conversation's kind of been coming to a close for the last 50 years or so. Uh, many will ask the question, is it wrong to drink alcohol at all? I mean, can I have one half of a glass of wine? Is that okay? Is it okay to have wine with the Lord's Supper? We have grape juice with ours, but what if there's wine in there? Is that okay? Some ask that. And then a newer conversation that has been coming along the way, as more and more states legalize recreational marijuana, Christians are starting to ask, well, wait a minute, the Bible says don't get drunk. It doesn't say don't get high particularly. How would I defend against someone who told me it was okay to do that? Is it okay to do? Let me answer both of those questions. First, on the question of is any alcohol at all necessarily wrong? Uh, the answer is very clear in the Bible. The Bible nowhere says that alcohol is a sinful chemical or that one glass of wine is a sin or to have one beer with dinner is a sin. It just doesn't say that. And it's wrong of us to enforce a morality on people that the Bible itself does not hold. It's also wrong to enforce a morality on people that Jesus himself did not adhere to. That's to add to the commands of the Bible. Now, if you look at alcohol and you understand the Bible's words about it and you say, that is dangerous stuff, I don't want to mess with that, there's nothing wrong with that. There's a lot of wisdom in choosing to abstain yourself because it's dangerous stuff. There's a lot of wisdom in encouraging one particular person to abstain because you know it would be dangerous for that person. But where we cross the line is when we say that something the Bible doesn't call wrong is wrong. That's the line we can't cross. We can't hold people to a morality that isn't in the Bible again. So while the Bible does forbid drunkenness, it does not completely prohibit the use of alcohol. You could, you could have it in the Lord's Supper. If we wanted to have it here instead of grape juice in the Lord's Supper, we could do that within the realm of the Bible. We choose not to so that even those who are recovering from alcoholism can participate with us without any temptation. Now on to the second question. Some are starting to ask, some especially young Christians are starting to ask, now the Bible says I I can't get drunk, but it doesn't say I can't get high. Can I use marijuana, right? That, this is an honest question that they're asking. And especially some as they go off to college and find that their friends are, and they don't really have an argument to give back to them, uh, they really don't know what to say. Well, look at the logic that Paul is using here. He's saying, don't fill yourself with wine because of what it will lead to, and because Christians are to be filled with a different kind of spirit. And so the reason he doesn't want us to get filled up with wine, the reason the Spirit of God is telling us not to get filled up with wine, is you do not want to let another chemical or anything you put in your body overcome you for the sake of fun. Now, marijuana was not 
around in the time of the first century when the Bible was written. We can't expect it to speak directly to that, but we can use its logic to apply it to today's questions. So is it going to overcome you? Yeah, marijuana does overcome you. It, it, it turns the spirit into one that's more relaxed, sometimes lazy, uh, and impairs your judgment. It does many of the things that alcohol would do if you had too much of it. And so the same principle and the same wisdom applies. You don't want to get full of things that are going to overcome you for recreation and for fun, because that's going to lead to things that the Lord does not want from you. And as we will see in a moment, there's a very different thing, a very different person actually, who should be overcoming you and influencing all of the actions that you do. Okay, so it's not saying alcohol is always wrong. I think its logic can be applied to marijuana. Uh, it is saying, though, not to fill yourself with wine so that you are overcome by it. And instead, you should be filled with a very different sort of spirit, he says. Let's look at what sort of thing should be filling a Christian. Uh, we'll look back at the same verses again, and we'll start with the word but in verse 18. He says, but be filled with the spirit. And by that, he means the Spirit of God. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. That spirit that you should be filled with, that should be controlling what you do and overcoming you, is the Spirit of God himself. When God is working in the world today, when he is doing all of the things that he does in the world, almost all of the time it is the Spirit of God who is on earth and doing the work. And in other places, the Bible teaches that the Spirit of God lives inside every believer. But here he's saying something more than that. He's saying, yes, the Spirit of God does live in you. Be full of that Spirit that lives in you. So let me outline kind of both of those things there. Jesus says on one hand, before he leaves, he says, I will send my spirit, right? Uh, and then just before he left, he said, I am with you always to the end of the age. And, and in another place says, you will receive power when the spirit of God comes upon you. And then the spirit of God does come shortly afterward in Jerusalem. Uh, this very letter that we're reading here, the book of Ephesians, uh, it says early on that when we came to Christ, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, which means that the Spirit of God dwells inside every believer. If you are here today and your faith is in Jesus Christ, very God himself lives inside of you and is sealed, will never leave. He's renewing your heart to long for the things of God. He is encouraging you in times of sorrow and darkness. He is giving you a deep sense within you that you are a child of God. He's enabling you to walk in Jesus' ways, doing all these wonderful things, and will never ever leave you. But what Paul is talking about here when he says to be full of the Spirit is to be, not just to have it in you, but to be full of it. Now, what could that mean? Well, again, the Bible speaks of being filled with wine and being filled with the Spirit as, as two opposite things, right? It presents them as contrasts. And I think keeping that in mind can help us understand the difference between just having the Spirit dwelling in you and being full of the Spirit. I'll give you an example. Let's say that in the same way that we're about to take the Lord's Supper here in a few minutes, let's say that you're on vacation next week and you go and you visit another church and you have the Lord's Supper at that church. And you, you know, you, the cup comes around and you take your cup and this is the blood of Christ shed for you and you take the cup and then you swallow the, what you thought was grape juice and then you realize, oh wow, that wasn't grape juice. 
right? You ever have that experience? Like that was, that was real wine and you just, without realizing, some of you are nodding your heads like, yep, I've done that, that's a shock, right? Okay, so you've just accidentally swallowed, you know, a little cups full of wine. And you're thinking, oh, okay, that was a shock. Okay, technically, after that, do you have alcohol in your body? Yes, you do. Okay, is it enough to affect your behavior? No. Is it enough to affect your judgment? No. Will, will anybody be able to tell? No. Does it affect your abilities or impair your abilities anyway? No. So it's there, but not in such a capacity to overcome you and affect your abilities or your behavior. Well, in the same way, it's possible for a person to be dwelled with the Spirit of God, but not be taking their walk seriously enough that it's really affecting much of their life, that the Spirit of God is really affecting their abilities and empowering their ministry, that the Spirit of God is really influencing their behaviors and the way they act, or that anyone around them could look at them and tell that they've got the Spirit of God in them. So in the same way that you could have a little wine in you but not be full of it, not be overcome by it, by contrast, the Spirit of God can live in you, but because of your own resistance or your own rebellion have so little effect in your life that you're not full of it. It's not overcoming you. It's not truly changing who you are. Now, over time, I think the Spirit of God God would grow in a person like that, uh, would call them to greater faithfulness, and eventually it would be clear, but it's possible there. So, so wine, when you are full of it, will affect your behavior, it will affect your abilities, and people will be able to tell. The Spirit of God, in the same way, when you are full of Him, will affect your behavior in the opposite direction. And it will empower your abilities in the opposite direction. And everyone will be able to tell for opposite reasons. Your behavior will be different when you're walking in the Spirit. You will be full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Some of you are singing the song in your head that we learned when we were kids, even as I say that. Uh, your words will be seasoned with wisdom and love. Uh, your thoughts will be clearer. Everything that you are doing will be sacrificial for others and for the Lord. Your behavior will be so different when you are full of the Spirit in a way that is opposite of that when you are drunk. Your abilities will also be empowered rather than impaired when you are full of the Spirit. And I'll give you some examples. When Israel was in the desert, there was a man named Bezalel, and the Lord said of this man, I'll read to you from the book of Exodus what he said about him. The Lord said, I have filled him with the Spirit of God and wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, in all kinds of craftsmanship, to make artistic designs for work in gold and silver and in bronze and in the cutting of stones and setting and in the carving of wood that he may work in all kinds of craftsmanship. So this man was full of the spirit. God put his spirit and just filled that man with his spirit. And what he went on to do was with skilled hands, he led all the decoration and ornamentation in Israel's tabernacle that would later become Israel's temple. All of these ornate, beautiful works of art, these golden cherubim above the Ark of the Covenant, all these fabric things. He was the one that supervised all of that and was able to do it in such a wonderful, ornate detail because he was full of the Spirit of God. The Lord empowered his ministry in that way, even though it was done with his hands and with his words. In the same way, King Saul, when he was full of the Spirit, was mighty in battle and when he disobeyed the Lord, that spirit left, and he was no longer as mighty in battle. 
When Christians are filled with the Spirit, our spiritual gifts burn a flame. An amazing empowerment for ministry happens. This is why in Acts chapter 6, when what I believe are the first deacons are chosen, Paul says, look around and select from yourselves seven men who are full of the Spirit to do this job because you need that supernatural empowerment to do that work. And finally, when you're filled with the Spirit of God, people will notice. Now, when you're drunk, people notice. When you're full of the Spirit of God, people notice that too. In Acts chapter 2, I love this, the, the Spirit of God comes down, all these miracles begin to happen, and all the bystanders are looking at what's going on, and it says some of them are amazed, but what do, what do the rest of them say? They say, these people are drunk, right? They're overcome with something crazy is going on here, and these people are overcome with something full to the fullness of the Spirit of God, and the bystanders are amazed at what is going on. Peter had to get up and say, no, these people aren't drunk, but they are filled with the Spirit, because when God's people are filled with that Spirit, other people notice and are amazed. So those are the effects of being filled with the Spirit, but some of you may still be asking what it is. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit of God? And if that's what you're asking, you need to know that Paul uses the words walking in the Spirit and being full of the Spirit very interchangeably. And he uses them to talk about just walking in obedience to God for a long period of time. It's almost as if you just get swelled up and full of God's Spirit as you take in His words and as you walk in obedience to Him. You become fuller and fuller and fuller of the Spirit of God. So if you want to be filled with God's Spirit, if you want that kind of empowerment for your ministry, if you want that kind of obedience and influence on your behavior, what you've got to do is take in the words of the Spirit of God, which are written right here, and walk in them, walk in obedience to them. It's not some weird meditative state that you have to achieve like inner balance to get to and it's it's got nothing to do with following your heart or being really in tune with yourself those are eastern and western myths you get there by obeying god fill yourself with the spirit's words and follow him and you will be full of the spirit so that's what it means to be full of the Spirit, and I think we all feel right now that if our church had that, we would have some amazingly empowered ministry going on. And the next few verses give us a little picture of what it looks like when the gathered church is filled with the Spirit. Just like wine bears visible effects on a group, so does the Spirit. And so we ask the question, what would that visible effect be right here if the Spirit of God we're here on our worship services. So we'll start at verse 18. We'll read the same part again. We'll start at the word but on verse 18. He says, but be filled with the Spirit. And then here's the visible, audible picture. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. What does Spirit-filled worship sound like? It sounds like people singing to each other. That's what it sounds like. Gloriously simple, right? We would almost miss it because it is that simple. No rolling in the aisle, no shaking and shivering. You don't have to strain with your face like you really mean it when you're singing. You can do that if you want to, but you don't have to do that. Just open your mouth, 
Take a deep breath, cast aside your worries about what the person in front of you is going to hear when you start singing, and let that swelling heart that loves Jesus come out in your song. Spirit-filled worship is that simple. And when people get together, we fuel it in each other. If you're nervous about how you sound, and all of a sudden everybody around you sings at the top of your lungs and you realize nobody's really going to hear you, you're just contributing to a great big choir, that empowers you to sing more. We fuel each other's singing and we admonish each other with songs and hymns and spiritual songs. It's so normal we would almost miss it, but that is what spirit-filled worship sounds like. And that, I pray, is the fruit that the Lord bears in us through this sermon, spirit-filled singing. That means that you can take a thermometer to the temperature of a church, just like sticking it right in the water, just by opening your ears and listening to whether or not the people are singing. I have been in churches before where the worship was led excellently on stage. Many, many instruments all played well, great technical theatrics going on, all kinds of technology happening behind it, just a fantastic show, but nobody was singing. Everybody was just watching. And that's a mark that the Spirit of God may not be present in those worship services. By contrast, when I was in Ecuador, I saw men and women playing instruments that had broken strings that were the best that they could afford, but, you know, wasn't sounding that great. But everybody in the room was singing. And that is a sign to me that the Spirit of God is in that place. You can take a temperature of a church. How active is the Spirit of God in that church? Just close your eyes and listen to them sing. That means we can take our own temperature as a church. How, how active is the Spirit of God in our church? We can take our temperature just by thinking back 20 minutes. What was it like when we pulled back the organ and the guitar and the piano for a minute? I heard you guys singing. And I'm thinking to myself, that is the Spirit of God at work in this place. That sound is one of the most beautiful sounds in the world, and that's what tells me that God is active and present in our worship services. It also means that you can take your own temperature by just kind of considering your own contributions to the worship service. You can, you can show up, and what happens? Does your heart swell up, and do you sing out? Or is it kind of the thing that you shrink back from, and oh, that's not really how I want to worship? The answer there can tell you something of your own spiritual temperature and how much the Spirit of God is at work in your own life. All sorts of other things to consider when you think about that. Some of us, just because of our health state, aren't able to sing. Some of us know that we're terrible singers and don't want to be inconsiderate of people. Uh, some of us say it's not really our personality to sing. But at the end of the day, if the Lord is moving your heart to long to sing, that is the work of the Spirit of God when those songs are in spirit and in truth. So. So for instance, those of you that are going through some kind of, uh, of health thing right now, some kind of ailment that prevents you from singing, uh, and you're thinking to yourself, oh man, I can't, I can't take my temperature because I can't even sing. Or I know some of you have pneumonia right now and you're saying, oh, it's killing me that I can't sing. Or maybe you just had surgery and you're in like, don't laugh, don't sing mode because you can't flex these muscles. The way that you could take your temperature is how much is that bothering you? Like, are you coming to worship and thinking to yourself, I wish I was singing. I wish I could open my mouth and sing at the top of my lungs. Right? Is that what your heart is doing? Or is your heart treating that like a really nice crutch? Like, ah, finally I'm off the hook. 
right? Like finally I don't have to contribute, right? That can tell you the temperature of your heart. I've got friends by contrast who many of them have said to me, uh, you know, it's not just not my personality to sing on Sunday morning. And I don't know if it's like this for everybody who says that, but I'm thinking of the three or four friends I have who say that, and every one of them loves classic rock and will jam out in their car when a Led Zeppelin solo comes on, right? And so I'm looking to some of my buddies and thinking like, bro, I've seen you play air guitar. Like, I know your personality when it comes to music, right? And so, so if that's you, if you're thinking right now, as soon as I talk about individuals singing in the worship service, you're thinking to yourself, oh man, that is so not my personality. Best thing you can do, I think, is compare what do you do when you're in your car or somewhere else and a song that you love comes on. I mean, does it make your heart burst and you're just, I mean, are you like into that? Compare that to Sunday morning when the people of God get together and sing the truths of God. Does that make your heart burst in the same way? I think that can tell you a lot about where your heart is with the things of the Lord. Because if hearing God's people sing his truth all together doesn't make your heart burst the same way that a really good recording does, it could be a sign that you're not walking in obedience to the Spirit. It could be a sign that your heart doesn't love the sounds of God's word being sung as much as it ought to. So what ought to be happening here is our hearts full of God's Spirit. They hear the sound of the truth being sung. They hear Jesus being exalted. And the Spirit of God loves for Jesus to be exalted. He hears that sound in you and your heart would just swell up. And that is what makes you want to sing. So you can just look into your own life. Is that what's going on in my heart when the people of God sing? Am I full to the top? because God's people are singing together. That's a mark of your own heart being full of the Spirit. This also means a whole lot for what we do when we lead worship service. And this, these very words in the Bible give me a chance to kind of pull back the veil here and tell you a little bit about why we do what we do in the worship service. Why do Paul and Sue and Sandy and Temple do all of the stuff they do? What's their purpose? Well, they're not performers. Uh, what they are here to do is lead you in singing. And every note that they practice and every song that they choose and every word that's put up on the screen, it all has the end goal of your singing on Sunday morning because we're trying to work in cooperation with the Spirit of God. And what's the Spirit of God doing in your heart? He's moving you to sing. And so everything they're doing comes down to that end. Worship is a performance, but the performers aren't up here. Uh, the performers are out there, and they're singing to one another, and they're singing up to the Lord. So for instance, we have lights up there that shine onto the stage. And when you go to the theater, when you go to a concert, there are lights shining on the performers so that your attention is on them because they're performing, right? But we use light for a different reason. We use light so that when Paul is done singing a verse and he backs away from the microphone, everyone is looking at him, can see what he's doing, and knows, oh, okay, it's not time to sing now, right? And then when he comes back up and goes, 
you know, and is ready, then oh, and now it's time to sing, and we're all singing confidently. So, so he is doing things, knowing that you are watching him, knowing that the doing this and doing that gives you more confidence in your singing. And that's the only reason we would even want eyes on us while we're up here, so that we can lead and give everyone more confidence in their singing. By contrast, those of you who sit over here on this side of the room probably don't even know what Temple looks like when she is playing the organ, right? She's hiding behind that thing. You know why she's doing that? Because she doesn't want to draw attention to herself. She's not a performer. She's instead doing subtle things that lead us in singing because, again, everything she's doing is about getting us to sing. So, for instance, when, when it is time to take a breath in a song, some of you don't know that when these hymns are written, there are like written points where there's like a little mark and you're going to run out of breath if you don't breathe at that point. You know, there, there are points like that in the hymns. When she gets to one of those points, she stops the organ for a second, pauses, and basically pretends to take a breath with the organ and then goes right back into playing. And when she does that, that means it's our time to take a breath. Now, most of you probably didn't know that she even does that or that's the time when you're supposed to take a breath, but I bet you took a breath when she did it because it's just so subtle and so subconscious that when you hear that organ going on and then it stops, you just go, and then you go into singing again. A subtle little wonderful thing that she and many organists do just to help the congregation sing. No spirit of drawing attention to themselves, just helping the, the congregation breathe so that they can sing together. That also means that after it's over, Paul and I sit down and we evaluate our worship services around one priority. All the technical aspects of the worship service, we evaluate by that one priority. Did it help the congregation sing? So, for instance, last week's uh, last week our slide projector wasn't working, right? So we all we printed out the lyrics and we all had paper and we were singing like that. And so Paul and I were talking this week, and the question was, well, that was kind of fun, you know? Do we want to keep doing that, or is is it a priority to get the slides working again? And so that all came down to one question. I bet you can guess what it is: Did we sing as well with lyrics in our hands as we did with the screen? And and Paul and I both felt the same way about it. No, everybody was looking down at their words and the singing was stifled and it was softer. And so we prioritized and put a ton of hours into getting the words back on the screen so everyone would be looking up and the singing would be more robust. Why would we put that kind of time through our week into something as technical as screens? Because it affects the singing of the congregation and all these technical details come down to that. We could ask questions about, is this instrument too loud or too soft? You know, is the blend right between the instruments? Well, if the instrument is overpowering the singing, then it's too loud. And if it's so soft that it doesn't help the congregation sing, then it is too soft. It all comes down to that same question. Were the people of God singing? And that means for you that you need to evaluate a worship service in the same way. Were the people of God singing? Too many people hear the question, how was the worship in a service? And they answer with what goes on on the stage and how much what goes on on the stage met with their own preferences and their own tastes, right? It's often the main factors that we think about. But instrumental choice and cultural flavor and youthfulness and all the things that we might want to look for on the stage aren't what mark the Spirit of God in a worship service. What matters is what goes on out there. 
Was it a good worship service or not? One question, did the people of God sing the truth? If they did, it was good worship. If they didn't, it wasn't good worship. And everything that's going on on the stage is all about that. And so that is how we've got to evaluate our worship services. So as we go forward and questions of style about our music come up, as we pray the Lord will bring us more and more newcomers, uh, it probably could be the case one day that God will bring us more musicians that play instruments that we don't currently have up here on the stage. And the question of, you know, what style should we be playing together up on this stage is going to come up at some point in church life. What you need to know is the thing that's going to stay the same. The thing that will stay the same is the priority will always be on finding a style that aids the congregation in singing. Some good godly styles of music don't aid singing very well, and other ones do. So the priority is going to be a sound that gets the congregation singing. Not a sound that meets everybody's preferences in the room. Not a sound that meets your preferences or the preference of the person three people down from you in the pew. But what gets the people singing? So if you're curious about where we might be going musically, as I really am too, join me in keeping your focus in what goes on the pews and not what goes on on stage. For what goes on in the pews is what God cares about. And again, everything we're doing on stage is just serving the purpose of singing in the pews. So when the people of God walk in the Spirit and are filled in the Spirit, a supernatural thing happens. They sing from the Lord together. And the last thing I want to do today is just ask you to imagine what happens if we get that right. You know, the world, as we talk about sometimes, is becoming more and more secular, right? Uh, more and more people are walking and believing as if there were no God, as if there were no unseen realm, there was nothing divine, nothing transcendent or awesome out there, that if you can't touch it or if you can't see it or smell it or taste it, if it's not here in the material world, then it doesn't exist. And with that comes a great despair that some identify and some don't, and that is that our hearts know there has to be something more awesome than what's in this world out there. And so the world is full of people whose hearts know that there has to be something more beautiful than a sunset out there and something more delightful than a baby's cry out there, but whose minds believe that there can't be and that this material world is all that there is. And so they sit down and they see a trailer for a, stro a show like Stranger Things where some monster from an unseen realm comes up and they are hooked because their hearts long for something supernatural. They see an ad for the newest Thor movie in a place like Asgard where the gods rain and they're hooked because they long for something supernatural and many times they don't even realize it. Well, imagine with me what happens when those people walk into our worship service and meet people full of the Spirit of God on high and meet people who have been walking in obedience to that Spirit all week and then hear the sound of a Spirit-filled people singing out to Him. They are going to know that what they have been longing for is right here. Something real and supernatural present in this room. It's a room full of people singing like Jesus really rose from the dead. We want supernatural work to go on in this room, right? We want people's eyes to be open to the truth of the gospel. That's supernatural. That's not a natural thing. We want people to turn from sins that they love 
and follow Jesus instead. That's not natural. That's supernatural. We want Christians growing more and more in Christ likeness. That's not natural. That's supernatural. And if we want supernatural things like that, cool music and a charismatic pastor is never going to get it done. That could attract a crowd, but it's not going to attract a church. It's not going to build a church. If we want supernatural work here, we need a supernatural spirit filling this place. So when people walk into our sanctuary, they need to see a people who are full of the Spirit of God, and they need to hear that in the way that we sing the truth. That's God's plan for church growth. His people obey Him. His Spirit fills them. Their hearts burst in song, and there are many other signs of it as well. And then people notice supernatural church growth. I feel that we could be on the cusp of it right here with the singing spirit that is already at place in this church. If we were to embrace the fact that the Spirit of God is here and sing out with all we have, oh, what the Lord could do. And I pray that God would bring that right here. Let's pray.